Conversations. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. Scott here with Raul, and today we're going to talk about infective endocarditis. But first, everyone's favourite bit of the show, housekeeping. Bit of housekeeping. We have some housekeeping. So, <laughs> this bit of housekeeping is slightly exciting. Uh, there's going to, we're going to be speaking, Med Conversations is going to be speaking at a National Leadership Development Seminar run by AMSA in Canberra on the 3rd of May. So Davor and I, all the, all the groupies out there, feel free to come and say hello to Davor and I. We'll be doing signing after the talk. Uh, and, you know, for an extra prize, you can come and hang out with us at the strip club after. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Davor's a big spender, so you might <laughs> get some collateral benefits there. Anyway, <laughs> on to the case. So, so you're an ED reg when frequent local client Uberhands represents your city ED. Mr. Hans is a 39-year-old gentleman who actively dabbles in recreational drug experiences of the intravenous variety. With many previous presentations, including infected injecting sites on his arms and legs, in addition to a past history involving treated hepatitis C and brief jail time for an incident involving an abduction of his friend's flatmate. Today, Mr. Hans presents with a swollen and painful right forearm after injecting methamphetamine two days prior. In between rigors and requests for his usual opioid withdrawal regime, go heavy on the oxy, Easy on the Coloxy. So they call it Manhattan, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he sits patiently in his bed, waiting for someone to get an ultrasound-guided IV into him. From the end of the bed, you note a fever of 39 and ask for some blood cultures and a septic screen, including chest X-ray and urine. So, Roel, what's the biggest priority in um, Mr. Uberhan's initial management? Um, I think getting him some drug and alcohol involvement and trying to keep this guy in hospital. You know, guys like this tend to get out of here pretty quickly so they can get another another fix and you know you want to do what you can to empower them to stay in hospital exactly right like it's very easy to blame people but if they've got a you know drug addiction and and say oh wow they self-discharge but like mm. if you're actually addicted to heroin it would be quite difficult to kind of sit patiently in hospital when you're sick as well mm. and when you're a doctor yeah including for us yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so um i thought we'd start just talking a bit generally about infective endocarditis so Roel, why do we care about infective endocarditis uh, one, it involves the heart, so obviously it's important. And two, it's super high mortality and has a lot of complications. Um, so people who have infective endocarditis are already starting on the back foot pretty hard. And so we really have to look after them very intensely and very carefully because there's a lot, a lot of wrinkles and tricks to management and it involves a lot of different teams. Cool. So pathogenesis, just quickly. Um, the main theory is that you have a small thrombus forming on abnormal endothelial surface, so a part of the inner cell layer of the heart that's been damaged or abnormal for some reason and then you get secondary infection of that nidus with bacteria that are transiently circulating around the bloodstream which can happen after normal things like brushing your teeth or after obviously surgical procedures and infections anywhere else or injecting methamphetamine into your arm or injecting methamphetamine into your arm is <laughs> another way they can get into there but you know he might have just been brushing his teeth yeah, you know? so, who are we to say yeah who are we to judge mm. um, and then you get secondary proliferation of bacteria and resulting in the formation of these vegetations that you can see on ultrasounds on the endothelial surface. So what is the endocardium, Mr. Cardiology Man? So it's sort of, I just think of it as the inner lining of the heart or the inner layer of the heart, and it spreads over the valves as well. So that has an uh, endocardium on it, and it's got an endothelium on it. Um, the myocardium is the muscle, and the epicardium and the pericardium are sort of the outer surfaces of the heart. Yeah, exactly. So it's just that really inner layer of cells, of the bit that's in contact with the blood in your heart. So... Um, just to kind of go through some key words, infective endocarditis usually involves uh, vegetation forming on a native valve surface that's 
surface that's called native valve, infective so endocarditis. Native valve is a valve that hasn't been replaced for whatever reason by valve surgery, so not a mechanical valve or a prosthetic valve. Yeah, so native valve, think normal valve. Um, and that's often because you've got abnormal flow, um, which is, can be regurgitant or high-flow stenosis, which can damage this endothelium and cause these secondary buildup of infection that we talked about. Um, and the other really key type is prosthetic valve endocarditis. Um, and in which patients is that pretty common in, Raul? Uh, so I guess in anyone who's had a valve, valve replacement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyone with a prosthetic valve, is that the answer? Yeah, that's the answer. Nice. It's uh, cool. a bit of a rhetorical question, yeah. Yeah, just to make sure you're listening. Um, and then you might hear the term pretty rarely, but just to be clear, non-infective endocarditis, also called non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis. Also called morantic endocarditis. Mm, fancy. There you go. Um, and that refers to endocarditis not caused by an infection, but caused by this kind of thrombotic process where you get formation of these um, sterile, so non-infective yeah. platelet and fibrin thrombi on the cardiac valves. Libman Sachs endocarditis, for anyone who remembers that from their, um, their med school days, mm. which you might still be in. Yeah, I'm good for you. Do you remember it from yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> um, and just to be clear, that's different when we say sterile infective endocarditis, which is there's still an inf- a presumed infective cause but you're just not growing cultures of the bug. And we'll talk later about when that can happen and why that can happen. And just as a quick reminder, rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease is a different thing, although it is called, um, it is a risk factor for endocarditis. Yeah, a rheumatic heart disease is caused by an infection, but it's actually an autoimmune damage to the underlying of the heart. So don't worry too much about that, but yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, so what do you think, how common is uh, infective endocarditis role? If I had to guess completely off the top of my head, I would say exactly 5.76 per 100,000 person years in developed countries. Yeah, exactly. Five to 10 per 100,000 person years in developed countries. Mm-hmm. You, you just, I just, you're a maverick. Yeah, I just a real feel for numbers. There's a Rain Man <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> yeah, don't steal my, oh, don't yeah, steal my jam. I'm yeah, a Rain Man guy. Yeah, that's that's my, that's my persona. Um, you actually see it a fair bit on the ward if you wander around a bit on cardiology or ID. Um, so risk factors for infective endocarditis. Do you want to think of one at a time? Just okay. mix it up. IV drug use. Yep. Prosthetic heart valves or TAVI. So if you have an underlying abnormal norm, abnormal valve that's still your own, so like if you have a rheumatic va- valve disease. Yep, congenital heart disease. Being male, I guess. That's, that <laughs> sucks. Really? Okay. Is that just because we use more IV drugs? Uh, no, I think it's, I think it's separate because okay. they've looked at it in IV drug users as well. Hmm. Um, 1.5 to 9 times more likely for some male. reason. Okay. Yeah. Um, age over 60, and this is increasing more and more, and that's partly due to the decline in rheumatic heart disease in developed countries. Poor dentition, which is another source for infection. Mm, check those mouths. Um, obviously, history of infective endocarditis. You can often get recurrence. Someone with a cardiac device in, so a pacemaker or what have you. I like using that phrase. What have you? What have you? <laughs> um, central or peripheral IV lines. That's why we always try and take them out. And in a similar vein, <laughs> uh, 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 chronic hemodialysis, which uh, is usually in an artery. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice. Um, and recent surgery or infection. And then if you have a bacteremia caused by anything, whether it be a cellulitis that's spread to your blood or a pneumonia that's spread to your blood obviously that's a risk factor for that sticking to your heart valves yeah and it can also go the other way so you can have an endocarditis that goes to it seeds a joint or seeds into an epidural abscess or osteomyelitis mm. or whatever mm. yeah so um Raul, what's the classical 
clinical presentation of infective endocarditis? I reckon that's a trick question because there's no classical presentation. I mean, if you had to be truly classic about it, I guess it would be an uberhansy type phenomenon or like somebody comes in with fevers and bacteremia and maybe even some hemodynamic shock because their heart valves are giving out. But I think what you're getting at is that People can present with low-grade fevers and chronic illness, even with glomerulonephritis. Throwback to last episode. <laughs> um, if they have sort of a subacute process and they slowly have uh, damage happening in their organs. Yeah, that's right. And you might hear about um, people talking about subacute infective endocarditis, which means it's coming on slowly, like over a few weeks, or acute um, infective endocarditis. So signs are pretty variable. The really key signs, as Real mentioned, are fever, murmur, uh, malaise, heart failure. Um, but they're going to be a bit dependent on orga- um, on <laughs> orgasm, <laughs> organism. <laughs> orgasm, yeah, that's another that's way. To, another risk factor. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep <laughs> keep abstinent, people. <laughs> um, so uh, main signs: um, fevers in over 85 percent. You might have rigors, particularly with bacteremia, just general malaise. Um, you might get some cardiac complications. So you know, the three symptoms that heart failure comes down, cardiology comes down to is. Shortness of breath, maybe some swelling of their legs, maybe some chest pain. Probably just the first two, really. That's all you need to ask about. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> what a wonderful specialty. Yeah. Um, and the the kind of cool and kooky one is you can often get peripheral emboli. So you've got these infected um, vegetations on the heart valves, and they can often flick off and cause um, um, emboli. And if it's on the right side of your heart, they'll flick off into the lung. So you'll get these pulmonary emboli. Yeah, just remember the the Sorry, I'm just going to abduct yep. it for a little bit here. But the pulmonary artery kind of feeds into the pulmonary, you know, what eventually is the pulmonary capillaries. And that's one net that catches almost everything because they're tiny, you know, one red cell width big. And then, so if you have something on the right, it's just going to form up in the lung. Whereas if you get something on the left, it could go anywhere because obviously the left side of your heart feeds all of your body with blood. Exactly. And when they've done studies, um, about 35% will present with some kind of neurological manifestation, like symptoms like a stroke or... Um, I had a patient meningitis, who was just delirious abscess. recently. He was had an infective endocarditis. Was really bright one morning. Went to him the next day, and he's just being super racist towards the nurses. And they're like, hmm, <laughs> "I've known this guy for three days, and it's very unlike him to do that." It could have yeah. been just him, but no, he had he had a cerebral emboli. Um, and yeah, and up to sixty five percent, just if you do MRIs on people, will have like a subclinical neurological um, embolus that won't mm-hmm. that doesn't cause symptoms. Um, and then I guess, you know, on that same note with the emboli, it can really happen anywhere. So I had another guy who had a septic wrist joint, uh, mm. and that was how everything was picked up because the infection had spread to there, presumably, as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, and we talked about Superhands having his little infected abscess on his arm, didn't we? Mm. Um, and you can also have symptoms of metastatic infection. That, like, that could also be an osteomyelitis. You could have an intra-abdominal abscess. You could have an epidural abscess. And uh, Roel's favorite last one is uh, immune-related glomerulonephritis can sometimes yeah. be a presentation yeah. for yeah. extra bonus points on the ward round. And if you want to know more about that, listen to our glomerulonephritis podcast, which does, by the way, just cut out halfway at the end. So don't... You're not <laughs> don't, crazy. Don't listen too expectantly. Yeah. So to go through examination again, so fever we talked about, murmurs um, are present in 85%, although a lot of people will just have a murmur and it's unclear whether it's, it's not very specific to endocarditis. You'll hear a lot in medical school about Janeway lesions and Osler's nodes. Janeway lesions are erythematous macules, red large spots on your palms and soles, and they're non-tender. Osler's nodes are tender, ouch for Osler. 
um, and they're violaceous um, papules, which are usually on your digit pads or palms. Never seen either of those in my mm, life. Super rare. Mm. More commonly, you'll just see either splinter hemorrhages under the nails or um, just petechiae on the skin, on the palate, in the mouth, or in the conjunctiva. Um, other things you might see are ROS spots, which are an autoimmune phenomenon, if you actually can do fundoscopy properly, which will put you in the top 5% of clinical doctors. <laughs> um, rarely you can get clubbing in um, subacute bacterial endocarditis. As we talked about, if you've got a left heart failure, you might get um, you know, pulmonary edema or um, septic pulmonary emboli that you can hear on um, auscultation. Or you might have signs of right heart failure, which are peripheral edema, nausea, malaise, ascites. Sorry, wait, were they symptoms or signs? Yeah, oh, I got signs. Yeah, I sorry, mean, signs. Yeah. <laughs> peripheral edema, ascites. Raised JVP. Oh, raised JVP. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can probably go through your career without that. No, you can't yeah, that. Um, You might have pain over joints or over their spine from the seeding um, infection. Or you might have stigmata of injecting or other signs of co-infection with HIV or hepatitis, syphilis. But realistically, at the end of the day, most of the people you get who are referred to you will be a combination of fevers, maybe a little bit unusually unwell, and maybe have a murmur. That's what you're usually working with. So back to our Uber hands. After three failed attempts, you managed to capture Uber hands in between in his bed, actually between his smokos. And he describes one week of malaise, followed by two days of fevers, rigors, and shortness of breath on exertion. He also strangely complains of seeing double whenever he rolls a spliff. And that's in the context of daily IV heroin use, last used yesterday, and whatever other delicious treats he could fill up his sauce bottle with. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't describe any localized weakness, back pain, or joint pain. So you proceed to the examination like the beautiful physician you are, and you note a fever of 37.9 with previous fevers of 39 in the department. His blood pressures are sultry 105 on 60, a little bit low. Respiratory rate's about normal, a little bit elevated, and he's oxygenating okay with a mild tachycardia. Everything's a bit borderline with his obs. So you move to his hands and you see some splinter hemorrhages, maybe a little petechiae, but no clubbing. And his arms show the aforementioned cellulitic swelling where he's been injecting and some track marks associated with that, as well as a tattoo of St. Maria. His eyes show no mouth petechia. I don't know why his eyes show that. <laughs> your eyes show that his mouth has no petechiae. Uh, and you also fail to spot the abducens palsy suggested by the, sim- uh, by the, mm. by the symptoms. Yeah. A deduction. Yeah, mm. that'll be a three out, six for your, uh, three out of six for your long case. Yeah. Um, and your mouth, you see his mouth, you see poor dentition and the aforementioned nil petechiae. <laughs> um, in his neck, you see an elevated JVP. With prominent V waves. Oh, oh, okay. Wow. All right. We're you can there. actually see it. Well yeah, done. Yeah, they're yeah. nice one. And in his heart, you hear a systolic murmur at the lower left sternal edge, aka the tricuspid area. Coming down to his chest, you hear some scattered crackles around the base, and you move to his abdomen swiftly and sultrily. So I'm going to use the word seductively, <laughs> and you don't feel any pulsatile hepatomegaly. In his legs, there's no peripheral edema. And in summary, you find that he's got some fevers, some murmur, and some non-specific stigmata of infective endocarditis. He's breathing a little bit heavily, but you're pretty happy he's going to survive in a ward bed. As I said, you're mainly usually working with fevers, murmurs, and maybe a little bit of unwell. Yeah, so what kind of initial investigation? What's the key one, really quickly? Echo, yeah. obviously. Well, I think echo, but (laughs) (laughs) as the ID person, representative here, I think blood cultures early and potentially early antibiotics would be the really key things here. Blood cultures are probably, unless someone's crashing hemodynamically, um, then yes, blood cultures would be the first thing to get. 
because JVP's only six centimeters. Yeah, he can he can eat through a bit more of his valve first yeah. before we fix anything. <laughs> so you want to get at least three blood cultures that it, that gets a sensitivity up pretty high for most gram positive organisms, and that's prior to any antibiotics. In the old days, or if you've got quite a brave ID reg, sometimes they'll actually hold off the antibiotics, particularly if it's a subacute, slow presentation of infective endocarditis. But this will be in discussion with the ID team, and usually you'll just give it because it's not going to do that much harm, really, if you've already got a few good culture mm. sets off. And then you'll want to order the most faithful of investigations, the full blood examination, where you might see a white cell count elevation or anemia if they've had a bit of grumbling chronic inflammation for a while. Mm. You'll do a UE, and you'd be looking for... Um, IE related glomerulonephritis or um, emboli causing some damage or even an AKI if they've got generalized septic shock or dehydration. On your LFTs, again, if there's been emboli to the liver, then you might see deranged LFTs. And also, you know, you get an idea about comorbidities, hepatitis, uh, alcohol use, that sort of thing. Yeah, you should always test for H. In any um, um, person with injecting drug use admitted to hospital with their consent, you should always check for HIV, hepatitis B, C and syphilis. And a CRP and ESR obviously will tell you if there's been a bit of inflammation going on. Yeah, rheumatoid factor for extra points on the criteria we'll talk about later. A chest X-ray, particularly in this uber hands type approach where he's got some right-sided suggestion symptoms because you might see raging pulmonary septic emboli looking Mm. like pneumonia. Present in uh, 50% of... um right-sided endocarditis you go. Um, you, if they've got specific focal symptoms like our friend did you might do a CT brain or CT angiogram so or some neurological scan. stuff going on yeah. Yeah, or even an MRI brain mm. um, you're doing an ECG and what are you looking for in the ECG uh, you want to look at that PR interval because, or, or any conduction abnormalities because if there's an abscess and we'll talk about that later if there's an abscess near the aortic root or even on the tricuspid side that can spread into the septum and mess with your cardiac conduction system yep um, other tests to round off, you might do a full ward test, um, looking for the GN that we mentioned, or a UTI as a potential seeding source. And you might, depending on what other symptoms I've got, you might do an ultrasound. In his case, we do one of his arm. Or you might do you know, um, a CT of his abdomen, looking for intra-abdominal abscess. You might... Just like the presentation, it's going to vary. I mean, there's the standard stuff, the blood cultures, the echo, the inflammatory markers. But all the extra stuff's going to vary depending on how your person presents. And the other really important things are early referral to infectious disease and early referral to cardiology and cardiothoracics. Mm. Yeah, so you want to get cardiology involved to get an appropriate echo and appropriate understanding of what the valve hemodynamics are and ID for help of the micro. Yeah, so what do you think, Roald? Is a transthoracic echo through the person's chest enough or do you think you need to do a transesophageal echo, a toe, through their I think their it depends on your esophagus. circumstances. Um, you know, if you've got someone who's culture positive, you know, you're generally, with a, especially with a high-risk bug like staph, you're probably going to end up getting a toe to reassure yourself unless there's something really obvious about why they've got it. But even then, uh, you know, it, I find it varies, but at the very least, you start with a transthoracic, and then a lot of people will get a transesophageal if they don't see anything there, um, just to reassure themselves there's no nothing on the valves. Because again, it's really going to make a difference to whether you give them two weeks or six weeks of antibiotics, and could make the difference between life and death for this person. Yeah, exactly. So if they're hemodynamically unstable, you'll need to make sure they get an urgent bedside echo. Wake up the cardio reg. Wake up, Roll. Doesn't matter if he's grumpy. Just tell I'm, him to get off his bum. I'm already awake. Stop so checking right. his face. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if it's stable, it might be. Up, it can probably happen the next day if they're looking really good. Um, but uh, and then 
in, in most patients, you'll end up doing a toe unless there's a contraindication. The reason for that is, as most of you probably know, so toe stands for transesophageal echocardiogram. And when you slip a toe probe down the throat, down the uh, esophagus, you get really nice pictures of the heart from the back without all the... You can use a much higher frequency ultrasound and you get really nice resolution pictures. And so for looking at subtle vegetations, looking for abscesses, looking for perforational leaflets where you get holes in the valve and looking for aneurysms, it's just it's a lot better. Yeah, exactly. You're not, trying to peek, surgery. you're not trying to peek through the rib cage. It's no. way easier. But um, So the sensitivity for a toe is over 90% versus only 75% for a TTE. I think that's for native valve. And for prosthetic valve, it's even harder to see on a um, transthoracic echocardiogram. So you usually difficult. need a toe. They can get little abscesses next to their metal valve, which can be very hard, you know, millimeters in diameter and very hard to tell on a transthoracic. But because it involves anesthetics, sometimes in crumbly older patients with really clear confirmed infective endocarditis and, you know, they're looking really well, you sometimes skip it. Um, so, um, Roel, do you remember the criteria for infective endocarditis? The Duke's criteria, something I always struggled to remember. I mean, I always remember there's just some major, some minor, and there's combination. You can either have two of the majors or, you know, some of the minor and some of the major or all of the minors essentially to get to get a confirmed diagnosis. Exactly. So the major criteria, it's there's only two, and the easy way to think about it is either echographic, echocardiographic evidence of um, vegetation or valve involvement. Yep. Or um, microbiological evidence. So that's usually two separate um, positive blood cultures with organisms typical for infective endocarditis. And there's some other criteria for less typical organisms, but you can look up all the details online. Yeah, I find clinically that I don't actually use the Duke's criteria that often. It's more of a gestalt. I, I don't know. Maybe it is more of a research tool, or is it meant to be used clinically? I find that people sort of roll off. Yeah, mm. I, I've actually found the same thing. But yeah. um, I think it's good to have. Yeah. Um, yeah, when you're learning, it's a good time. And it's a good way to think about it. About. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's not that clear. And often mm. people are pretty conservative with treatment anyway, in terms yeah. of giving and people some, antibiotics. You know, no one's simple. Sometimes you meet people in the, you often meet people in the hospital who just have all this other stuff going on. It's very hard to interpret this in the context of that. But it is good to know. Yeah, I mean, and to kind of segue from that little philosophical discussion, we're going to go into the minor criteria. So <laughs> um, predispositions such as IV drug use or predisposing heart condition like um, severe congenital heart disease, a temperature... Um, septic emboli in the lungs or peripherally, any immunological phenomena like GN or um, positive rheumatoid factor, or um, microbiological evidence that isn't quite really good going classic organisms in two sets. So you might have an atypical organism or just one positive blood culture or something like that. So as, as Rule said before, you get both the major criteria, echo and blood cultures, that's confirmed, or one major, three minor, or all the minor criteria. Yeah, and you can also have possible um, endocarditis. If you I, tr don't I trust you've all remember that now. Yeah, it should all be down that again. back i hope you enjoyed did you guys miss the musical interlude i know i did so now we're going to talk about the microbiology of infective endocarditis 
So the most important thing to know is it's usually a gram-positive cocci. So Staphylococci, Streptococci, and Enterococcus are the most common genera. Genera. Plural of genus. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the culture for those things is often pretty quick. But it, there's some other rarer organisms which take a lot longer to grow. So you'll see really different um, frequencies of organisms based on which kind of study you look at. But and whether they have prosthetic valves or native valves. but really. Whether they're injecting or not and mm. what country they're in and whether they have rheumatic heart disease. But mm. anyway, who cares? The, they're the most important ones. And I'm just going to really quickly run through some of the other a bit more common ones that you might hear about. So um, Staph aureus we talked about. Um, Viridens group Streptococci. Um, Enterococci are important and sometimes can be vancomycin resistant as well. Um, Coag negative staph um, are actually quite common, 11%. And are actually, I think, one of the more common ones in prosthetic valve endocarditis, but they're quite rare in native valve. That's a key thing with them. Strep bovis, um, also other streptococci. Um, you'll hear about the Hasek organisms, which are actually pretty rare, only 2%. Yeah, you always used to hear about these Hatchek organisms, Hasek organisms, and it's got these weird collection of uh what five bacteria but i don't know why they were so popular because they were oh yeah because they were hard to grow they're just really hard to grow so there's old school labs got very excited about them but um look up the list if you want to it's look up the list i'm about. just going to try and say one of them just this this is how confused so the old name was the first one for h is Haemophilus afrophilus and that's uh now been changed to aggregatibacter afrophilus and mm. paraphrophilus I got there. And the second one is Actinobacillus actinomycetes. <laughs> Fuck that. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So uh, non-haystack gram-negative bacteria, about 2%. And then fungi are important because they've got really high kind of mortality and complications, often in immunosuppressed people. And 8% are actually culture-negative endocarditis. Of, of fungi, that is. Uh, no, of, oh, of the total okay, of this yeah, series. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's pretty common, almost 1 in 10. Um, and that means that it's a presumed infective cause, but you just can't grow that bug um, that's there. So take-home points, I think, are that, is that Staph aureus eats valves fast, is associated with a high mortality, and associated with more disseminated infections, so spreading infections into joints and abscesses elsewhere. Yep. Um, the organism you grow might give you a bit of a clue as to where the initial um, primary source of infection was, e.g. if it's like a gram-positive co- cocci or skin flora, it might be from dental work, um, if it's strep bovis or uh, new species called streps uh, gallolyticus and might be it's linked to colorectal cancer and there's some other little things you can look for yeah and lastly there's this whole idea of culture negative endocarditis and the fact what there are some specific organisms that are associated with culture negative endocarditis which your friendly id team in the form of scott will help you identify Mm -hmm. but what are some (laughs) what are some of the common or what are the more the ones you think about with culture negative endocarditis scott I have not done any formal ID training to date, but I can tell you that uh, Coxiella burnettii, uh, Bartonella species, Chlamydia species, Legionella species, Mycoplasma, Brucella, and a lot of these are tested for with PCR rather than culture. Mm. So you have to be specifically looking for them. They won't just rock up hence on your culture and hence culture negative endocarditis. So back to Mr. Hans. Mm, Mr. Hans. Mr. Uber Hans. Mm. So he has settled comfortably into a ward ID bed and insisted on using masks to protect himself from coronavirus, except when he goes down the street to share a cigarette with his old friend, the Iranian deputy health minister who's come over to visit. This joke definitely won't dace, mm, I don't think, that no, coronavirus no, will be very no. topical in three years' time. <laughs> um, so well, then maybe it will be the most topical thing. Maybe we'll all be dead from the coronavirus. <laughs> 
Yeah, the start of the, the first dare those bastards joke Iranian. about the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Was that an Iranian accent? I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was offensive. Bastard, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's certainly offensive. <laughs> um, so you refer to ID, the echo team, and cardiothoracics, and the blood cultures return for Mr. Uberhands. They show a gram stain showing gram-positive cocci in clusters. Perhaps grape-like in nature? Grape-like. And what's mm. grape-like? Wait, that's streptococci, isn't it? No, the staph, staph, staph clusters like grapes. Clusters, yeah, staphylococci. Stripper in lines, chains. lines, lines. Yep. Um, and you do it. You're great friends with the Echo Tech, and he manages the same day TTE just for <laughs> narrative yeah, purposes. He keeps telling you, Scott, I'm not an Echo Tech. I'm Rahul the <laughs> Whatever Echo Tech, we're good friends. <laughs> you keep asking him if he wants to start med school. <laughs> but um, the tricuspid valve has a nine millimeter vegetation with small to moderate amount of regurgitation. The aortic valve shows a six millimeter vegetation with no valvular insufficiency. Remember, ten or twenty millimeter are some of the guidelines for a moderate to large vegetation you might hear. Mm-hmm. Um, the ejection fraction is sixty percent, so low limit of normal, and there's no other valvular abnormalities or pulmonary hypertension. What does his chest X-ray show? So his chest X-ray shows. Remember, we're looking at tricuspid valve vegetation, infective drug use into the veins first settles on the tricuspid valve, and it shows some consolidation in his right middle lobe. So maybe a little pneumonia going on. Yeah, so you ultrasound his um, little cellulitic bump and it doesn't show an abscess, just to keep the case short. Ooh, thank God. And his <laughs> bloods are normal and HIV screen is negative. However, he does have a hemoglobin of 95. Bloods aren't that normal and his liver function is also deranged. And also he's got hepatitis C. But his bloods are normal is how I would describe that. Yep. So he's hep C antibody positive. So what's the next test that you do? Hep C PCR. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. if you'd cleared the virus, your antibody would say positive. Mm. So his ESR is 45, CRP is 110, rheumatoid factor positive, all good. So what do we do now? What's our first priority? Locked and loaded. We've got infective endocarditis. Now, our first priority is to make sure we give him some empiric high-dose antibiotics. Yeah, not just write on the chart and walk off. Just walk. make sure he's physically received it. Because mm. if he's got staph eating away at his valve, he'll die pretty quickly yeah. if you don't stop him. Time is valve, as they say. So does Mr. Uberhands fit our formal criteria? Well, let's have a think about it. He's got some positive blood cultures. So that was one of our major criteria. That's yeah. a tick. Yeah. We've got our friendly Echotech, the cardiology registrar, who's confirmed that he has <laughs> has some vegetations on his valve and some valvular regurgitation. So that's a tick right there. Uh, so it's two major criteria. He's got a fever. He's got um, a positive rheumatoid factor for immunological. Mm-hmm. And what's the last one? Um, oh, he's got some septic emboli. Septic emboli. In his lung. In his lung. lung. So, so on the chest Two X-ray. major, three minor lockdown. And maybe he's even some down. subclinical he's in his got, brain he's as got well. extra. He could donate some of his criteria to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Effective altruism. <laughs> um, so uh, how, what about antibiotic choice? What do you reckon? Uh, I call you the friendly antibiotic tech and get you to tell me what antibiotics to put on. Yep, so the friendly unregistered person without any formal experience, you give him a call, whoever you know, someone yeah. friendly, <laughs> yeah. and you um, and he'll tell you to look up on ETG and chat with the formal ID team. But just some rough guidelines, Van- think vancomycin for your first initial agent. And the reason that's a really good empiric regime, if you're, it'll cover most of the gram-positive cocci. So it'll cover your MRSA as well as your MSSA, for that, so for that matter. That's sta- methicillin-resistant staph aureus and methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll cover your coagulase negative staphs, like staph epidermidis, some of your skin flora. It'll cover also most streptococci and enterococci as well. So it's a good first-line agent. Um, other options, 
if you get a you know initial gram stain which shows a gram negative bacilli, you might give kefepime. Or if your hospital's got really high rates of daptomycin, or and you see um, uh, and you're worried about enterococcus, then you can also give daptomycin. There are some empiric regimes that you can find on ETG. I think it's fluclox, benpen, and gentamicin and things. But yeah, you know, j- j- consult your ID team um, after you've had a look at ETG. And the only other thing, just to mention, you've seen on a drug chart, so you don't cross it off, is that if you if they have prosthetic valve endocarditis or persistent bacteremia, sometimes they'll try to um, use a synergistic second agent, such as low-dose gentamicin or rifampicin, to try and really penetrate into that um, Yeah, those drugs just help infection. the other antibiotics get into the bugs to actually kill them a bit more effectively. Exactly. So Just like when I hold Scott down as Davor beats him, I'm <laughs> synergistically helping Davor beat Scott. <laughs> yeah, so you're the gentamicin or the I'm, I'm the, or gentle, the gentlemicin. Yeah. <laughs> gentle people. Gentle <laughs> All right, um, so... And duration of therapy. So you can look into the details, but it's usually between four and six weeks, depending on a couple of factors, like how complicated the infection was and if there's, you know, bacteremia for multiple days or if it's a resistant organism. And this is all pretty heavily considered stuff by the ID team. So don't worry too much about having to make these decisions, but they're going to be, they're locking in for some long-term IV antibiotics, four to six weeks. Yeah, often completed with hospital in the home. Um, And one of the problems you run into is, is people generally, yeah, they go to hospital in the home with a peripherally inserted central line in. Uh, but if they're IV drug users, that creates a portal of access and really exposes them to a lot of risk if they're still sort of actively using. So just something to think about that can complicate a lot of your treatment. Yeah, and the other thing to mention here is this new exciting POET study in Nedjum, published within about a year, um, which involved early randomizing these patients with infective endocarditis who are really stable to switch earlier to an oral rather than an IV antibiotic. And in the, in the oral arm, they got a mean of about 17 days of IV. And it, the study came out that it was non-inferior. Um, but I think I don't think there's quite enough weight of evidence now that many ID physicians would be brave enough to just choose to switch to an oral regime before the four to six weeks without a, you know, another really good what reason. Are you, what are you it. really saving the person? I mean, you're, you're putting their life on the line potentially there. Yeah. I know there's reasonable evidence, but yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, I think it's still evolving. But in a couple of years, it could be that it's a bit more convincing. Mm. So now we're going to talk about surgical management. So this is a complex area, and there's not many um, randomized controlled trials that have been done. It's largely kind of looking at cohorts, and it's really difficult to separate, you know, who are the more sick patients, who are the ones getting surgeries, and what's the best thing to do. But about 30 to 50% of infective endocarditis cases require surgery. So it's pretty common that um, people need it. So to try and kind of give you a rough guideline and some key indications without going into details, things that often require surgery are if there's um, heart failure signs or symptoms resolving, um, res- uh, resulting from valvular dehiscence, uh, if there's an intracardiac fistula, or if there's really severe prosthetic valve dysfunction. Um, it's not always indicated for surgery if they've got a prosthetic valve endocarditis, just keep that in mind. Um, although, you know, it does su- suggest you might need it. Um, into other complications that suggest you need surgery might be if there's heart block, if there's an aortic abscess. That's one of the reasons it's really important to do that toe to look for or a destructive penetrating lesion. If you've got prosthetic valve endocarditis or other um, endocarditis caused by fungi or really drug-resistant organisms, um, and if you've got persistent bacteremia after five to seven days despite effective antis. So their blood cultures just keep coming up positive despite giving them a good run of antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as I mentioned, it's more commonly required in prosthetic valves. 
Yeah, so I think the big things here, there, there's also sort of a, some evidence about really large vegetations over 10 millimeters that are flapping around because they have a theoretical high risk of embolizing somewhere else. But I think the things to know here are one that one thing that I encounter a little bit is once someone has some stuff in their brain or they have some sort of hemorrhagic transformation somewhere, the surgeons get really hesitant because one of the first things they do in surgery is give someone 50,000 units of IV heparin, which is a, a boatload of anticoagulation and they can bleed. And one of the other things to know is that valves that are in prosthetic valve endocarditis where people have had a valve for a long time, it's really hard for the surgeons to operate. First of all, there's a lot of scar tissue on the way in and then the valves are really fibrosed in there. So they have a high threshold to operate on those people because it's just difficult. Yeah, and this is a really complex multi-team question that the consultants will be arguing about and probably disagreeing with each other. So yeah. I wouldn't get too worried about I mean, the we discuss all of these cases in conference where we have a few ID physicians, about 20 cardiologists and five surgeons, and everyone sort of argues about what to do. Mm. It's a really tough question. Mm. Um, and another factor might be if it's a you know someone with ongoing active intravenous drug use, um, you might try and avoid replacing their valve because they might be less likely to adhere well yeah, to anticoagulation. Yeah, you always have to think about source control. Have you actually controlled where all of this bacteremia comes in? Because once you put a metal valve in someone or a prosthetic valve in someone, it's probably going to get infected again if they still have it. So, you know, if it's one, that's where that thinking about what bug it is. So for something that's a typical gut bug, then you want to make sure there's nothing ongoing in the gut bug. For example, we had a guy who we realized just before about taking the surgery that he had a huge splenic abscess. And so that we had to deal with that first before operating on him. Exactly. All right. Um, so coming back to Mr. Uberhands. So you start him on vancomycin with a loading dose and ongoing BD dosing. Um, and cardiothoracics review him and he elects to observe him very closely and continue medical management for now, not for mm. cardiothoracic bed card. Um, <laughs> That's the most important part. <laughs> key thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's admitted under ID. He gets daily blood cultures, ECG, looking for aortic root abscess and ongoing IV vank. His culture grows MRSA. I don't know whether we already said that or not. Um, I think we did. <laughs> but it clears after 48 hours of antibiotic therapy. Um, he, Mr. Uberhands refuses to have a CT angiogram to investigate his uh, transient diplopia that he had as he is claustrophobic and he, th- and he t- tells you that if that cheeky bug is behind my eyeballs, I don't want to know about it. After much gentle persuasion, however, he undergoes a toe. Transesophageal echocardiogram. Which confirms his two valvular lesions and does not show any aortic root abscesses or other complications. Lucky man. So we've almost finished now, and we're just going to talk about a few of the really key complications to think about in patients with um, infective endocarditis. So one of the key things, we've talked about this a bit already, but embolization. And the risk of embolization is up to 45%. But once you've started patients on um, effective IV antibiotics, the rate kind of declines rapidly. So usually within about a week, it's pretty rare to have emboli coming off, even if they're still on their IV therapy. Um, the perivalvular abscess, that we, like for example, aortic root abscess, is another really um, uh, common, uh, serious complication we talked about, which doubles the risk of mortality, doubles the risk of embolus from 30% to 64%. Um, and moving into mortality, is this a very severe disease, Raul? Do you know what, what it is Extremely roughly? Extremely severe, yeah. I mean, uh, even with treatment, 15 to 30% of people will die. Um, mm. And that's certainly been my experience in the hospital. It's like, yeah, once people are in this sort of going down this pathway, embolizing more often or strange things of their valves getting destroyed, you, you, you quickly find yourself going from a well person. With one guy who was totally normal talking to me in a week and then one week later he was pretty much dying. 
And that's, yeah, that's a really easy trick. Because often these, sometimes these patients actually look really well. They're walking mm. around the ward, you're keeping mm. them in for weeks. It seems like for no point on IV antibiotics. Mm, that guy but, wanted to go home the first day he saw me, so he felt fine. He just had one fever. And then, mm. Yeah, bam. Yeah, so it's bad. And the other quick thing to mention is you might hear about people talking about right-sided versus left-sided infective endocarditis. This isn't super important, but um, right-sided is often a bit better. The mortality is a little bit lower. It's mainly in infective uh, uh, people with injecting drug use, mm. more often staph aureus. And more just often remember with those right-sided ones, yeah, they're going to embolize to the lungs, whereas the left side can embolize anywhere. Yeah, to the brain or mm. It's nice to have else. that little lung, which is a catcher's mitt for all the, the crap. And the last little thing to kind of reinforce is that staph aureus, i.e., is much worse than other kinds of um, endocarditis. You have kind of double the risk of stroke and about double the risk of mortality as well. So another thing we'll just mention briefly is um, people talk about antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis. Um, mm. So we used to give a lot more antibiotics to people who were undergoing things like dental procedures and colonoscopies and gastroscopies because we thought maybe we'd reduce their risk. But the guidelines have really tightened up around this. I think it was 2017 or 2015. Mm. So where are they at now, Scott? Yeah, so theoretically it makes sense that a lot of things give you a transient bacteremia. We talked about how these bacteria go around the blood. They find that little spot with the damaged endothelium. They kind of join on and that's how it all starts. But um, while they've shown that giving... Um, uh, antibiotics for people um, who undergo things like dental procedures and operations will reduce the bacteremia, the bacteria in their blood. They haven't actually, there's not very good evidence that it actually reduces the risk of uh, infective endocarditis. So the evidence that's there, it's a kind of very minimal effect. So currently, it's still kind of recommended for really high risk patients undergoing um, invasive procedures because we don't think it probably does that much harm. Um, but usually this only includes people who've already had in infective endocarditis, have really bad or prosthetic, really bad um, congenital heart disease or prosthetic heart valves or a transplant with other valvular problems as well. And in those patients, getting a dental procedure or abscess drainage will give mm. them a bit of antibiotics. But and the not, other not side well of evidence. it is, you know, what are they actually undergoing? So there's high bacteremic risk procedures like, you know, esophageal dilations and then there's sort of a standard gastroscopy. So, you know, that also plays into it. Yeah. Um, so to finish off the story, um, Mr. Uberhands, the end of the saga. After a couple, of, uh, a total of six weeks of intravenous um, vancomycin and going cold turkey on everything from the crystal meth to caffeine, with his uh, handy dandy new methadone prescription, Uberhands feels much better, um, and he's keen for discharge home. Sorry, it hasn't been six weeks yet. We'll say it's been two weeks. <laughs> um, like many active intravenous drug-using patients, this involves a discussion with risk with the patient, with the medical team, um, trying to go around talk about risk education and a, maybe a behavioural contract to, to make sure he's not injecting into his um, pick line when he goes home. So, And this is another example where I don't think we should stigmatise the patient. Um, you know, For a start, he's, he's shown that he hasn't been injecting while he's been in hospital, but um, they actually had a... Um, a review of evidence in 2018 that showed that people with injecting drug use had similar rates of complication to the non-injecting population when they went home with a uh, with a central line and um, uh, for you know to finish off their parenteral uh, their IV therapy. So and in that study, in that review, there was also very rare instances of IV misuse. So in most cases, it's if you can kind of educate the patient and you think you've got a good chance of them not using the central line, it's pretty reasonable to at least give them a trial. Mm. Okay, so after a bunch of that multidisciplinary faffing about, <laughs> faffing about, what does that even mean, faffing about? <laughs> um, 
Anyway, after some faffing about, we trial Uberhands on some outpatient intravenous therapy with a hospital-in-the-home program and weekly blood tests, and he managed to complete six weeks of IV vancomycin and IV methamphetamine through his pick line. (laughs) 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 He's finished the whole course, and uh, (laughs) he successfully discharged from the hospital-in-the-home program. (laughs) (laughs) So as a final thank you to your thorough and non-judgmental assessment, now you're the Hith. Outpatient registrar. We're just switching things yeah, around yeah, a bit. You're rotating the whole Postmodern, stream of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Follow it along. Um, he gives you a mixtape that he created using only sounds produced from his IV machine in hospital. And then he goes on to fulfill his dream of starting a successful two-man van-based removal company called Men With Ven. The obvious plurals of both those words. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed that. I actually think we did all right for time on that, Scott. No, we've blown out super mm. topics like hyponatremia to an hour before. So, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was all of infective endocarditis. Bam! That's yeah. all any surgeon, ID physician, or cardiologist needs to know. Sorry if we were talking a bit fast. We're just trying to bang through it. Mm. Um, and we were planning on two musical interludes, but we thought we'd give you a break. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll put five in the next one to make up for it. Yeah. Or no, maybe we'll just release a song, a mid-conversation <laughs> song. <laughs> I'll just leave a leave the microphone next time you go have a shower and see, yeah. see what they're singing along. We can get a lot of sounds. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, no um, more no more post housekeeping. <laughs> no more post housekeeping. Uh, we're gonna try and mention the schedule before. We're gonna try and do a schedule of yeah. Try and do once a month. We slipped up this month. We're five days into the new month, but once a month release a podcast and maybe a bit more content that's useful on the page. So if there's anything that you're finding that we're doing that we're liking or not liking. Just keep it to yourself, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Just follow us on Facebook and send us a message. Hey, follow us on Facebook. Yeah. 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 Nice. Bye. Thanks. Bye.